We're in Luke chapter 11, and what we're starting, if, or what we've been doing the last few weeks is, and we stopped a couple weeks ago, we're on the Lord's Prayer, okay? We're talking about that occasion where the disciples must teach us to pray, and if you've been with us, we've been giving the, uh, repeating this, because it's a key thought is why we should be praying, and we give you several reasons, and we keep on repeating it so that it sinks into our mind that, hey, listen, this isn't an optional thing. This is something that God commands. God wants us to be doing it, and that God will reward it if we are doing it feel like, you know, the Lord is, is right there at that moment, and sometimes that makes difficulties for us. There's a true account that came out of sports field that in uh, the 90s that when Barcelona hosted the Olympics, there was a gentleman that was running for Britain. His name is Derek Redman, and he was the favored runner and supposed to be the winner for the 400-meter race. The race took off. He was in the lead. Everything was going fine. It was in one of the heats not the final race, but in one of the heats. And he was leading, and all of a sudden, he felt a twinge in the back of his leg, and then he collapsed. He had pulled his hamstring. After all those weeks, all those months, all that preparation, and he was writhing in pain on the, on the pavement there, and other runners passed him up. And so emergency people came out. They were helping. He pushed him away. and tried to get up, and he's hobbling down the thing on one leg because he's just determined. His coaches came out. He pushed him away. But then there was one gentleman that came out of the stands. And when this gentleman came out of the stands, he had a shirt on that says, Have you hugged your kid today? Nike uh, cap on. When he came up and offered help, then Derek allowed him to help him. Guess who it is? His dad. His dad came out of the stands. And the two of them hobbled. In that heat of the race, they didn't cheer so much for the winner, but the crowd just erupted when the Redmonds crossed the finish line because the idea was, I want to finish. There are moments where we need that help, and that help that comes when we feel like it's not working. It's interesting. I was just reflecting on it this week. That's what I wanted to share with you. When, it ta- when we talk about prayer is how much the Trinity helps us in our prayer life. The Father keeps on promising time and time and again that He will hear us, the comments that our Father, that He will be involved in our prayer life. Then we have Jesus, who during His earthly ministry and since that time, He is very, very involved, actively involved in helping us in our prayer life. Just the passage we're going to study in a few moments. He taught the disciples how to pray. He told them that when you come and pray, pray in my name, giving us the permission to come in, in his name, which is huge in our prayer time. And then what he does in heaven right now, multiple passages talk about he's interceding for us, that he's in heaven, that he is presenting our prayer, prayers, pleading for us, and helping to advocate for our prayer life and our walk with the Lord as well as the needs that we have. And on top of that, what does the Holy Spirit do? Do you remember what Romans talks about, that there are moments when we don't know how to pray but the Holy Spirit makes groanings with intercessions that he is praying for our, on our behalf as well. And so when we talk about you and I praying, we're not stuck doing this by ourselves without instruction, without guidance, without assistance. It's not like some boss, some employer, some authority over you telling you, you got to do this, but you don't have a clue how to do it. God gives us a lot of direction, a lot of encouragement, a lot of assistance even while we pray. And so there's the help that when we pray. Now, what we talked about is the last time we were together, 
together, we focused on this, that there's a lot of different hindrances to our praying. God is helping us, but sometimes we're our greatest roadblock. We're the ones that kind of stifle our prayer life. We're the ones that kind of hold back the answers that God would give us, that he's wanting to give us by a variety of different attitudes or conducts or things that we choose to do. And so we need to look at these items. We need to say, hey, listen, this has got to be out of my life. I don't want to be portraying this that would hinder my prayer life. I want to be praying properly, and I want to be praying even when I do. I want to pray right. That's what happens in Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 11. It's the same lesson, but it's taught on two different occasions. One's in a huge crowd, Matthew 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, don't pray like these people, but pray this way. Another time that he teaches what we call the Lord's Prayer is in Luke chapter 11, that when he's teaching it, he's teaching it in a private setting with his disciples while they are traveling and getting ready to head towards Jerusalem. And they see him praying and they say, what are we, how are we supposed to pray? They've heard the lesson. They've heard this, that whole series with that sermon before, but he repeats the same side, the same thoughts. And he's challenging them and says, this is it. It doesn't change over a period of time. When you pray, pray this way. And he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, when you pray, say, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Then he goes on and and he gives other lessons to them about the importance of persistence in prayer, which we'll talk about in the days ahead. But in that section, let's just reflect. Let's dissect the Lord's Prayer, and let's just highlight some thoughts out of it. That when we pray, here's what Jesus said, that we're supposed to be involving in our prayer. Oh, I have some notes that I forgot I wanted to share with you. That it's supposed to be a priority concern with the believers. It's something God expects you and me to do. It's something that we should do, that we, we want to do. They come and say, teach us to do this. It's something we need to learn. It just doesn't happen automatically. Praying and praying properly is something that we're supposed to learn over a period of time. And like in Jesus' case, the best way for you to teach others how to pray is just to do it. Jesus did that with his disciples. And our prayers don't need to be long, but there's this basic pattern, something that he says should involve, generally speaking, not every prayer is going to be this way, but generally speaking, you're going to have some of this content. What is that content that he says? Well, we start off, we said, and this is where we ended last time, that there needs to be a personal relationship. Our Father. Okay, that whole idea that we need to be born again, otherwise we have no right to be coming before him. That he's got, we've got no assurances that he's going to answer our prayer. But then he says a little bit more, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That teaches us that there's another aspect of prayer here that should be involved when we pray. It's praise or reverence. Okay, and so it's interesting the way that this is phrased, that the uh, grammar is a little bit difficult at times to be dealing with. That when he talks about it, it's, it's, he's, he's giving an imperative in the prayer, which is unusual. That the, you know, an imperative is usually from a superior to a subordinate. It's a command. And so here it is, it's a subordinate to a superior saying it in a way is, I want this to happen, which implies to us that there's a real urgency, that it's, it's a command, but it's basically just a plea, just a begging, please, please let this happen and let it happen now. This is what I strongly desire. It's, it's the little kids coming up and they are promising you their entire life. If you would just let them buy this one treat, they'll never ask for anything again. If you give them this $1 treat, and you know that's not going to happen, but it, there's that urgency 
urgency in their mind. Here's the urgency that's there. And what he is saying is he's implying that when we go to God in prayer, we should be really, really strongly desirous that one of the first things we do in our prayer time is saying we want you to be exalted. This is about you. This is about you being praised. This is about you being given the glory. And that's an interesting concept when you think about what Jesus is implying. Jesus is saying when we come to prayer, maybe what we should be doing is even expressing these words so that the thoughts are in our mind, so that we remind ourselves, he is greater than me. That he's not my servant, I'm his servant. That I'm not just going to pour out these requests like somebody ordering at a restaurant. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. But rather we acknowledge his greatness and our humility. In some way, some shape, some form, as you start your prayer time, he is saying acknowledge God's greatness. And that idea that in everything, in even my request, and even what I'm hoping to do, somehow remind yourselves in this general prayer time that you are the servant. He is the sovereign. That it is all about him being glorified, him being magnified, that we start our prayer time with, a, with an act, an expression of humility. Interesting that he would say that. That he is saying, make sure you exalt God. Make sure you, you diminish yourself. Make sure that you come and you remind yourself of your position before the Father. Then he goes a little bit further. Then in, when he talks a little bit further, he says, okay, uh, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That phrase is really an interesting phrase. And it's a challenging thought. What does he mean, your kingdom come, your will be done? Uh, yeah, we all know. We all know that it means, okay, total surrender to him. But what does he mean about the first expression, your kingdom come? Okay, there's lots of different, different thoughts here. Is he talking about that idea that souls get saved, the kingdom of God in the heart? Is he talking, we want you to come down from heaven and establish your physical kingdom? Is he saying, I want you to be in control of everything on planet earth like you are in control of everything in heaven right now? So take over the rule and reign of planet earth, which we wish he would. And that would be his timing. I, I think most of us would say we would like that right now. Is he saying, uh, not on a universal social governmental level, but on a personal level, let you be in total control of my life like you are in total control of everything in heaven? Which one of those different aspects does he mean by your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Could it be all of them? Are any of them unbiblical to be wanting and to be praying for? Okay, and even if the physical kingdom doesn't come right now, don't we want people to get saved? Don't we want him to be in total control. So Jesus is recommending that some in our prayer time, not only do you give praise, but somewhere we're saying, God, please, this is what I want you to do. I want, I want you. Okay? I want you to be in total control. You be in charge. Giving permission for him to control and dictate how you live, how you operate, what you're asking for. And letting him be totally in charge. So we're relinquishing everything to him. And Jesus says, okay, that's what I want you to be doing. But I want you to remember, when you're doing this, God's authority. So some way, however you're going to phrase it. If you're going to write your prayers... Okay. But somehow recognizing and reminding yourself by expressing it that he is the authority. 
that he is in charge of your life and that uh, somehow you're expressing it and saying, I want you to be you know, in, in, totally in control. Recognizing your kingdom come, your will be done, that he has a plan for you in my life. That he has some type of dictation. He has something. And so you're expressing to say, God, I want your will. I want your ways to be guiding and directing me in my life and all that I do. And it's to be like, uh, like nothing else to be in charge. That this is all about honoring you, praising you. So in our prayer life, when he comes, says, give some praise. You know, humble yourself. In our prayer life, make sure you recognize and say, God, you're in charge. I want to be yielded to you. Then he goes into a next mode. You know, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Then he starts making the petitions. Okay? The request. He asks, first of all, in his recommendation, is when you pray, what should you ask for? Give us this day our... Okay, our daily bread. Why would he talk about daily bread? Because most of you don't need daily bread. We, we joked about it a few moments ago. If all of a sudden the fridge was gone, okay, we'd miss it. If the freezer was gone, we'd miss it. Okay? But you and I typically don't pray, give us this day our daily bread because we have bread. Okay, we live in a culture that we usually have enough stored up for weeks, days, Okay, it could be that we could get through a crisis of, you know, some people store enough, they could get through the tribulation. Okay, so he is saying here that, that in that day, we understand, in that day they needed daily bread because they basically got paid every day. Okay, so it's a different culture. But what he is expressing here is a variety of different thoughts. That doesn't mean we should not pray for our petitions, our, day, our needs, but rather let's, let's see how this fleshes out. It's okay to pray for physical needs. And, and again, I state that, and for most of you, you say, yeah, duh. But there are some folk who think that if, if we pray for ourselves, we're praying selfishly. And so in a, in a false sense of, of guilt, they feel that they shouldn't pray for themselves. But Jesus says it is okay to pray for yourselves, to pray for your physical needs, your own physical needs. So that's an important aspect here that we want to make sure that if you're doing a Bible study with somebody on this passage, you're telling them it's okay to pray for your needs. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's also okay to pray for these items over and over and over. By the way, the verbiage that he keeps on using, a lot of the verbs here is please keep on over and over and over giving us this day our daily bread. That it's an ongoing thing. It is an expression, and here's where you get to the gist of it. This is an expression of trust and dependence. When you and I verbally pray, somehow in our minds or express out loud, when we are saying, God, I'm dependent upon you for my paycheck, that takes us out of the realm of thinking, I work for, you know, so-and-so. I work for, you know, Harrisburg. I work for Hershey. I work for FBC. Okay, we, it reminds us that actually we're not working for those people, but we're working for the Lord, Okay, and that we're really not dependent upon the government, not dependent upon, we really acknowledge that our great dependence is upon who for our provisions. Yeah, and it's a reminder because you and I need reminders. And so he's saying when you pray on a regular daily basis, plug this in there. Plug some way that you remember your dependency upon him that he is the provider, he is the one that's meeting all your needs. And so we need to acknowledge that. The, uh, the phrase that several have pointed out that when it says, give us, okay, it is an idea of, of acknowledging this is a gift from him. He doesn't owe me this. 
But I'm acknowledging that this is his grace and mercy to take care of my needs. And so I'm in my expressions, in my prayer life, somewhere, some involvement in this is saying that, God, I'm dependent upon you. You don't owe me this. You, you know, this is my expression of what I'm saying is that I'm depending upon you more and more. One author in his comments said, if we prayed this on a regular basis, it should help us to become more content. Now, I don't know about you, but we Americans, and I know I struggle with this, we see all this advertisement. We see all of what you know, is around us, and sometimes we aren't so content. He's giving us a clue here, a key to saying, how do we develop a spirit of contentment? Make it a part of your prayer life. In your prayer life, giving thanks, acknowledging he's meeting my needs, and I'm dependent upon him, and whatever he gives is a gift, and hopefully it will increase our, our contentment with, with what he provides. Not what we want, but what he provides us. There's another element that he throws in here, where he says, forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who forgive us. Okay, now he's talking about an, an, a crucial element, an ingredient to our daily prayer time is a pardon, is repentance. That idea of asking God to forgive us of our sins. Now, we've we got to make some notes here, okay? The word that he uses here isn't, isn't the same as some other passages for sin. It's the word that he uses here is one about financial indebtedness. And it's used several times in Scripture, but it's the idea that you are so far in debt, there's no way you can get out. And this is that heavy debt, that, that impossibility to pay back. And remember, in Bible days, if you didn't pay back a debt, where would you end up in? You end up in jail until somebody else paid the debt. And so with that in mind, it's like, God, I have such great debt, I need you to pay the debt. I, I can't grab a credit card and cover my sin. I can't have, you know, I'm, I'm dependent upon you. You need to forgive me, please, of the sins. Now, the audience that he's telling this to is critical in interpreting this. Who's he talking to? Uh, he says it the one time, yes, in Matthew chapter 6. He's talking to a Jewish audience as a whole who didn't think necessarily they need as much repentance. They thought the repentance was for who? Everybody who's non-Jewish. When he's speaking in Luke 11, who's his audience? His disciples. Let's, let's focus on Luke 11. Okay. When he's speaking to the disciples, what does that tell you about believers? When he teaches his followers, his believers, you need to pray, forgive us our sins. What does that tell you? We still sin. Okay? Now, isn't it true? There are elements of brothers and sisters in Christ who are preaching today, who are teaching today, that if you are really saved, you've, you arrive and no longer sin. There are churches teaching that. Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus is saying to his apostles that you still can, can sin, that you still struggle with this. You who are dedicated. Remember at this point when he teaches this, this in Luke 11, at this time, this is in the second half of his ministry. They have been with him for months. They have gotten the best training that anybody has gotten. They have also gone out and done what type of ministries that, they, that all of the 12 have done. Do you remember? They went out preaching. What else did they do when they preached? They did miracles. They cast out demons. So they've had some really, um, what do we want to say? So they've had some wonderful experiences. They have, if, if they were walking around today, we would want them to come and speak to us. They're, they're, they're Christian celebrities. 
They're on this hierarchy of, wow, they've really arrived that in, in the way that we grade Christianity and how we get caught up with, with personalities as a whole. These guys are there. And he's saying, wait a minute, guys. You need to be praying, forgive us our sins. That no matter where you're at, you can still sin. And you need to pray. And the, again, the verbiage is, keep on praying over and over, God, I need you to forgive me of my sins, which means that this can still be a struggle. Now, most of you are sitting there and saying, yeah, tell me about it. Why are you emphasizing this? I know this by experience. Well, just to drive it down, Jesus is saying, okay, if you battle, if you struggle, and if you are you know, mature in the Lord, which a lot of you are, you still have these battles, you can still go to the Lord, and that's the beauty of this, that we go to the Lord and rely upon Him for forgiveness, and that He is willing to forgive us. Here's the danger, I think. I think it's a danger. We who are getting older in the Lord, we who are maturing in the Lord, sometimes we forget to come with daily confession. We just kind of gloss over and we just say, well, I'm going to church, or I'm going to do this, and I'm doing other Christian things. We forget about confession. We forget about repentance in our lives over attitudes, over words we said, over how we treat somebody like our spouse, and we kind of just gloss over it as it's not that big of a deal that I was gossiping. It's not that big of a deal that I had those thoughts. I'll just go to church, and I'm going to put something in the plate this morning, and it'll just cover it. And he is saying, no, we who are mature in the Lord who are maturing in the Lord, we need to remember we've got to humble ourselves before God and we need to confess. We'll gladly say the drunk has to confess. We'll gladly say that you know, the drug addict has to confess. We'll gladly say that the gay community needs to really grovel in repentance. But we're not so quick to say that we need to grovel in repentance as well for our attitudes or our words or how we treat other people. And so he is saying, okay, this is a necessary part that when we come to prayer, we need to make sure we're right with the Lord. We need to make sure that we are asking him and the interesting that God is willing to forgive us. Now, here's the part that, that is, again, very encouraging but challenging. How many times is God willing to forgive you for a wrong attitude? How many times? Yeah, does he give you three strikes and you're done? Does he give you, when, when, you, when you, you, know, you do it again, you lose your temper, you, lose, you do it again, and you say, Lord, I've done it again. How, does he ever say, that's it, I'm done with forgiving you? No, remember, remember the parable Jesus told? And he said, forgive, you're supposed to forgive one another with the idea that we keep on getting forgiveness. You're forgiving one another how many times? 70 times 70? And the idea there isn't a number, but it's rather... You just keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving, keep on forgiving, because the reality is, what does God do to us? He keeps on forgiving, keeps on forgiving. And Jesus invites us. This, this, is, this is the wonderful thought. Jesus, who is preaching purity, who is preaching you know, uh, sanctity, you know, if you be as your father, be perfect like your father is perfect. He is saying in this instruction of prayer, but you can keep on coming and asking for forgiveness. You can keep on coming. He's not therefore saying go out and sin. But he is saying, if you do, which he knows we will do, he is saying we can keep on coming back with repentance. It's not an excuse to sin, but it is rather an escape from the, from the penalty. 
And so that's the beauty of this grace, that God is willing to forgive us if we confess. And that's what you and I have to crave that verse, that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all, uh, from all unrighteousness. That his grace still ex- it's extended to us who are born again. Us who are knowing and, and trying to f- follow the word. But in this text that he's talking about forgiveness and challenging us that when you come to pray, give me praise, humble yourself, be willing to just say, you know, you've got my life. And then you start bringing your petitions, which it's okay to bring your petitions. You know, you're praying about your car, your house, your bills. It's okay. You're praying about your clothes. You're praying about your job. But as well, you need to make some confession. You need to make sure you're pure, you're clean, and ask me to forgive you and confess your sins, not just say, forgive me for everything I've ever done wrong, but trying to acknowledge and pinpointing them. When you do that, he says there's a condition, though. Forgiveness is there except for, and what's the condition in this text? What, what is the implication here? Now, in Matthew 6, he expands it a little bit more. But here in Luke chapter 11, he says, Forgive us our sins, for we also, and what's the condition? We need to forgive others. Do you remember how Matthew expands upon that? Matthew says, If we do not forgive others... Our Heavenly Father will not forgive us. So there is a condition here. It's twofold. One, we need to make confession. Okay, confession is implied here. The other condition is we need to be willing to forgive others. Now, uh, let's explore that. Okay, let's explore that idea of forgiving others, this pardon, this repentance. Christ assumes, okay, we believers want to forgive others. How do I know that he assumes it? What's the, ver- what's the wording that he uses? As we forgive, okay? And so he's just assuming you're going to forgive those who have hurt you, those who have done you wrong, those who have not kept their word to you. As we forgive. So it's an assumption, okay? Failure to forgive. This is profound from, for the believers. Failure to forgive. You've got to remember why it's so profound. Because in Jewish society, was it okay for Jews not to forgive people? Okay? from their perspective. They often gave excuses for not, in their mission, if you read it through, they often had idea, and we, we understand, it, we understand from this perspective that, that those who really studied the law, yeah, yeah, they understood they're supposed to forgive. But in the Mishnah, they gave a lot of excuses of why you could still not, um, not love a neighbor. Okay? That you're supposed to love your neighbor. That was supposed to, in fact, we'll see it this morning in message. There's a little quote in one of the notes. Love your neighbor, but do what to your enemy? They literally said this in their writings. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemies. Okay, and so Jesus has to counter that in that Matthew's sermon. And they would often give qualifications. Who is your neighbor? Who do you have to love? And they would put up these parameters. Okay, you don't have to love this person, and they didn't say it, but I'm just going to throw out something like you know you don't have to love somebody with red hair, somebody that looks different than you. And they would have those qualifications, those characteristics. Well, Jesus is kind of obliterating all that and just saying, hey, listen, if you're if you're not willing to forgive other people, you know, without drop all of your established codes and rules for why you don't want to forgive somebody. Just drop it. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to forgive, then... And he drops a bombshell on his disciples. 
okay? Then you're not going to be forgiven. I mean, remember the last time he talked about forgiveness? Peter's the one. Peter's the one that said, we only need to forgive how many times? No, Peter takes it to seven. What did the law say they had to do? The, the Mishnah. Three times. Peter is the one that throws it up and says, well, we'll do it twice as much plus than anybody else. They're still living in that Jewish mindset that gave them the ability, the, uh, not the ability, gave them the opportunity to hang on to some anger, some angst, some bitterness, some hurt. And yeah, they're supposed to love their, their neighbor, da, 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 but if that person hurt them three times, that's it. They don't have to. Peter says, well, we'll do it seven times. And Jesus is just, he, this is huge. We need to forgive others who offended us, and he doesn't put a restriction on it. He doesn't put a qualification on it. He doesn't put an excuse on it. And yet, we can condemn the Jews for their, all their added stuff that allows them to try to manipulate. But we do the same things at times. You know, we, we do this with family who has hurt us. You don't understand. My family, and we can, you know, try to top the, the, the stories that of somebody hurting and somebody doing this and, and not forgiving the way the Word of God talks about forgiveness. And we keep on bringing it up from years gone by. And, you know, and it's, it's done. It's over with. But we just hang on to it. Jesus is saying if we hang on to those things, it hinders our own walk with Him. And so he's challenging. I mean, this is profound when you think about the setting and how the Jewish mindset was where they gave excuses, they gave limitations, and he's not giving limitations. He's just saying, this is the way I want you to live. You need to come with repentance for what you do, and you need to be willing to forgive other people. Okay, now, and again, I understand and you understand that forgiveness doesn't mean, okay, that means that other person who hurt me deeply or who stole from me or who took something, that doesn't mean I, I need to make them my banker, I trust them, but we need to forgive, an attitude of forgiveness. And so we may have, we may have some, some we, don't, we don't put complete trust in them like we did before, like they're, you know, the guy who robbed us, we're not going to have him watch our money again. But we don't have to keep on with the attitude of angst and anger against that person time and time and time again. It needs to be dropped. And so Jesus talks about that and just make sure if you want forgiveness, which we're supposed to want, then we need to make sure we're right with other people. And we drop it. We drop the conflicts. We leave them go. We move on. And we move forward. And so it's very, very challenging concept here about the pardon and about the repentance. Let me add what he does. Then he prays for protection. This is the reliance factor. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This throws a lot of people. Uh, just it, we're, it's, it's almost comes across that I have to pray to God not to lead me into temptation is the way that some people read this, which puts the blame for temptation and sin upon who? Upon God. Okay, God, lead me away from the temptation. I'm praying you, don't, don't, don't you lead me down that path as if God is the one who led Adam into and Eve into choosing the forbidden fruit. And therefore, God is responsible ultimately. No, 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 that's not what this is. This is a unique way. By the way, Pennsylvania Dutch, what's, the, what's repeated over and over that Pennsylvania Dutch sounds funny and they say things like, and what's the phrase that keeps on coming up? 
throw, yeah, throw the cow or throw the animal, throw the, throw the cow over the fence some hay. That sounds funny to most people, okay, because the way that it's the verbiage, okay, the, uh, the idiom of Pennsylvania Dutch. This is an idiom, or what we would call it actually, as it's called a totes, it's, it's a verbal, it's a grammatical structure that's kind of unique to the ancient Near East, the A-N-E. That what they do is they have a phrase like this that they say at times, and you have to understand the way they say it. Okay? You know, like, like here, we, people will say, I feel my nerve. Okay? What's that mean? I'm embarrassed. Okay. People outside of the community, even some who move into the community, have no idea what it means to feel the nerve. And it sounds weird, sounds funny. Well, people outside of the ancient Near East who look at this and say, let it lead us not in temptation, and if they don't understand the, the way that the, that group of people talked, they will misunderstand this. When he says, lead us not in temptation, it's a way of saying the real idea is lead us away from temptation. In other words, God, i got to beg you so you don't lead me this way. No, it's like, God, I'm begging you, help me not to choose to go this way. It's a huge difference. And so, God, you pull me away. You take me because my bent, my inclination is to be drawn towards temptation. Is that true? Is that true of all of us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's our natural. So what Jesus is praying, okay, and what he is saying is that when you and I pray, we have to understand God, and this is his instruction. Pray this way. God, and you know this. I mean, for me to say it seems so trite. He doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't want us to sin. And so he's praying that what you need to do, even though you are disciples, even though you're going to be church leaders, even though you've done all this stuff, you haven't arrived at sinlessness yet. That's, that's still a part of your life. And what you need to do is you need to come before me and you need to ask, and I'm willingly, I'm going to accept you and I'm going to forgive you, but you need to be praying for me that I will help you to have victory over your sin. Peter struggled with this. Peter struggled, and even though Peter's the one that meets in Acts chapter 15, he meets with the church and says, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. The gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And he and Paul stand there in Jerusalem and say, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. Paul still struggled with his old attitude of prejudice against Gentiles. Do you remember when he's on the rooftop and he's told that you need to go to Cornelius? He hasn't been told. It's going to come up in a few moments. But he's, he's there, he's praying, and all of a sudden he has the vision, and the sheet comes down from heaven, and it's filled with what kind of animals? All kinds of animals. A lot of them are unclean. And the Spirit of the Lord says, rise up and eat the unclean animals. And he immediately jumps back to his Jewish practice and says, I have never let one of these one of these bad non-kosher foods crossed my lips. I will not do it again. And then God basically says, whatever I've commanded you to do, and I call it okay, then it should be okay for you. And then right after that, he gets the door knock. Down at the, and somebody's calling for him and saying, come and bring the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius is who? Is a what? He's a Gentile. And so God is saying, wait a minute, you've got to get rid of your Jewish prejudice. Well, then he preaches. Like I said, they get together, he and Paul, and they say, we've got to stop being prejudiced. We've got to let the Gentiles into the church. We've got to let the Gentiles into the church. But according to Galatians chapter 2, what does he do after that? 
All of a sudden, he and, and Paul are fellowshipping with believers, Gentile believers, and a group of Jews from Jerusalem, Jewish believers, come walking into the room and see that Peter is eating with a group of Gentiles. And what does Peter do? He gets up and he moves away from the Gentiles, practicing his old prejudice, and will, sits down and only eats with the Jews which is his old prejudice. It's not that people have bad breath. It's not that they had bad, bad habits. It's his Jewish prejudice. And Paul says, I had to confront Peter face to face that what he had done was wrong. And he uses the word for sin, that you had done wrong. You know, and, and Peter could have easily you know, given excuses. The point is that believers like the Apostle Peter still struggled years later, and so will we. So God help us not to fall into those old prejudices, those old practices. Keep me so that I avoid the temptation. And so he says, you've got to pray about this. And since we believers are not perfect, we have to keep on going, and the only way to overcome temptation is through God's assistance, through God's help. And so he says, make this a part of your, living, a part of your prayer life on a daily basis. Keep on acknowledging I need you, Lord. Lord, I need you. I need you not only to provide for me, I need you to have purity in my life. I need you to help me, protect me. Lord, I need you. Oh, man, I need you, Lord. And so prayer is an important part for purity. You're struggling with containing your thought life. You're struggling with controlling your, your desire to go out and spend foolishly. You're, you're struggling with attitudes towards other people. You've got to make it a matter of daily prayer and saying, here's the key. I've got to be praying about it. You need the Word of God as well. But prayer is an essential element. And yet we get so busy, we run into life, and we say, I don't know why I don't have victory. I don't have victory, but you don't have prayer time. You don't have prayer time. And he says, this is it. This is the key to it. So when you pray, I want you to put some praise in there. When you pray, you have to have permission. Now, God, it's all about you. When you pray, bring your petitions. Be willing to confess. You're asking for your own pardon and as well as giving to others. When you pray, you're asking for protection. You're asking for protection. And so all those elements, you know, you know sometimes we, we, we don't take things seriously. Do you remember building up? You've read history. In the 30s, as Hitler was building up and building up and building up, people didn't take him seriously. They thought he was a fad. They thought that as he got into control, he could be manipulated. But he got out of control, right? And millions died. And even like, you know, like some of those who, uh, Bonhoeffer, who wrote later after he was, his writings were revealed after he was dead, that, that we didn't, we, you know, we just kind of let things happen, let things happen. We should have combined together to stand against it. That's the way it is with sin in our life. We need to combine with the Lord to stand against it or it takes over. Now, that's his Lord's Prayer. Let me do a nudge just to get started here this morning. Another aspect of prayer that is critical, and that's this thought. Do a Bible study this week. Just look up the idea of prayer, prayer when it comes to you and others. Okay, that Matthew 11, um, Luke 11, Matthew chapter 6, that's about you praying. But what about you and others? 
Here's what I know about you and others and me and others praying. I know, number one, it's this, that we're not supposed to be praying just to impress others. So when we pray, it's not about, okay, how do I impress you, you, me, you know, my family? That's not it. We already talked about this, that in Matthew, he taught, makes it very clear, those who stood in the streets, you know, by the synagogues, they would, they would all of a sudden get in a public venue and they would pray, and he calls those type of people hypocrites. And so Jesus in the Matthew 6 says, enter into your closet, you have your own simple, quiet prayer time. So prayer is not about impressing others. Okay? We're not, we're not supposed to be about impressing others with our Bible knowledge, our prayer time, or trivia, and different things like that. So just, he says, back off from that. Now, what I do know is just an overview of Scripture, that we are supposed to be praying with others. Even though Matthew 6 says, enter into your prayer closet, there are other times where praying with others, like Matthew chapter 18, where two or three are gathered, I am in the midst. Okay? That, that's a prayer passage. It's not a church passage that, okay, this is, this is all you need for a church is wherever two or three believers are. Therefore, you can have a church in your car. You can have a church. That's not the concept. That's, the concept is we're praying for things, and I'm in the midst of where two or three are back gathered. And so the, where you're gathered together and you're working, I'm going to be listening, and I'm going to be assisting in your prayer life, and yes, I'm agreeing with you, and some of how you handle certain things. And so that's a Matthew... T- Jesus, did Jesus ever pray with other people? Did he ever want other people to pray with him? Yes, he did. Okay, we know about that. We know in the book of Acts it was a common practice, praying together, that the 120 are praying in the upper room. We know that where they're praying together, where there's this male-female group. They're praying, and, and the whole church is gathered in Acts chapter 12, where they're praying together, and they don't even have the church leaders there. Peter's in prison. That's what they're praying for. And when he gets out of prison, he says, go and tell the other leaders who aren't at that prayer time, go and tell them that I've been released from prison. So it's the lay folk who are getting together, and they are praying as a group, and they're praying all night long. So this idea of praying together is there's a combination of the two. We pray in private. We pray together in public. There's a balance. You don't want to swing the pendulum and say, well, Jesus said we shouldn't. Therefore, you know, I have uh, distant relatives who got born again. They, um, they, uh, we got into discussion when I was visiting with my parents last weekend. We got into discussion about these relatives and their interpretation of Scripture. Their interpretation of Scripture was you only believe the red letters that are in the Bible, which is... The words of Jesus. Okay, so you don't you don't need to listen to anything else. Um, if you just do the red letters, do you miss a lot of the context of the red letters? Yeah, you do. Okay, and so therefore they because of that they say it's wrong ever to pray with other people because Matthew chapter six is in red letters, but other times where Jesus is praying with a group or whatever. It's black letters because it's telling the background story. And especially black letters where the church gathered to pray is all in black because it's the book of Acts, etc., etc. And so uh, these same relatives, they don't believe that you should have a church. You shouldn't, don't go to church because Jesus never talked about gathering together as a church, which there's a reality to that, that Jesus only one time talks about, or twice, I will build my church and then tell it unto the church in those two different texts. And he never gave the idea of pastors. He never used that term. So these relatives don't believe that you should ever have pastors. It's just you and the Lord, and it's very noble, and it's very spiritual, and it looks and sounds really good, but they have just totally discounted 
most of the New Testament and just avoid most of the New Testament. And it sounds noble, but it's not biblical because all Scripture is given by... Okay, God spoke in all of it. And so, um, so with that in mind, you know, we go to the Acts and we say, okay, there's, Jesus said, yes, let's pray in private. But then he encouraged it and the believers practiced it, those who were taught by him, a lot of public prayer. Okay, that we do it together. We know that it's profitable if we do it, that it's going to help us to be closer to the Lord, that when they went and they prayed in Acts 2 and Acts 12, they're given wisdom, they're given assistance. In Acts chapter 4, they're praying for boldness. And as soon as they prayed for boldness, after they were beaten by the, by the Sanhedrin, they all of a sudden preach, and there's a lot of people that get saved. James 5 talks about if you pray together as a group, there's going to be healing. And in fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about praying together as families. Okay? Husbands and wives praying together in particular. And so that idea of, of praying with other people is biblical. Okay? And it's, it is important. There is another thought that there's several passages, quite a few of them in fact, that talk about praying for others. Okay, for sake of time, I'm not, I'm not going to go much further, but can you think of a passage of Scripture that specifically says, when you pray, pray for this group of people? Can you think of any, this group of people? Okay, praying for pastors. That's going to be in Ephesians chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 2, pray for kings and all who are in uh, an authority. Okay, can you think of any others we're supposed to pray for? If anybody persecutes you, bless them and basically pray for those who treat you poorly. Um, is there any particular passage that demonstrates or says you're to pray for your family? We think it. We assume it. Do you have a text that encourages pray for family? Look it up. Look up. Do a little bit of study this week. See if there's anything in Scripture that states praying for your family specifically. 